not everything in life is what it seems because even salt looks like sugar. Greetings from the dark side of the pomegranate. I am your host, Billy Hoosh. Welcome to Even Salt Looks Like Sugar, a podcast that explores true crime, paranormal activity, and unsolved mysteries. This series discusses difficult and distressing subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Kimichiwa. I'm Sarah Afshar. Free will is a choice and a God-given right which correlates with the act of a human being. But what happens when the entanglement of darkness reveals a human being's ulterior motive as well as actions and compromises an innocent third party's physical, mental, social, emotional, spiritual, as well as psychological state of well-being? And remember, not everything in life is what it seems, because even salt looks like sugar. Episode 6 The Murder of Junko Furuta Some of the most gruesome acts of human nature occur when you least expect them. As the present is only an interface for the past and the future, there is no way of knowing what will happen tomorrow. In the case of 16-year-old Junko Furuta, distressing is an understatement. For the next 1,056 hours, which is equivalent to 63,360 minutes, or 44 days, she would go on to suffer some of the worst, most extreme, and unimaginable torture for no reason. Join me as I take you through the highly disturbing and portentous death, the death of Junko Furuta. It was a cold and dark gloomy night in Adachi when Junko Furuta decided to ride her bike home. She was working a part-time job after school to earn extra money as she had plans to work for a major electronics retailer shortly after she graduated from high school. She was a junior at Yashino Minami High School. 
Her goal was to earn money and garner financial freedom by the time she graduated so she could eventually go to college. At the time, she was living with her parents and her two brothers. As she was walking out of class to head to her part-time job, she was approached by Hiroshi Miyano. Miyano was a rebel, came from a relatively dysfunctional family, but was outstanding at judo. He had a girlfriend at the time he approached Junko. Miyano complimented Junko and asked her out on a date. She didn't accept his invitation and proceeded to walk away. This angered Miyano, who, filled with ego-driven rage, plays an important role in her abduction, which I will get to shortly. Fast forward to November 25th, 1988. It was like any other day for the 16-year-old until she was followed by two unidentified men who would later play a major role in one of the most diabolical deaths ever. Remember the man who asked Junko on a date? At around 8.30 p.m., after Hiroshi Miyano spotted Junko riding her bike home, 15-year-old Nobuharu Minato knocked her bike over. Being completely unaware that this is a setup planned by both men to abduct her as they both had the intent to violate and assault a woman, Junko was approached by Miyano who then asked her if she was okay before telling her that Minato was crazy and threatened to harm him. Junko started to address her concerns about needing to get home. As Miyano assured her they would reach her home soon, he led her to an abandoned warehouse where he knocked her down. As Junko realized his intentions, she attempted to scream for help. And as she tried to scream, Miyano threatened her with his connections to the Yakuza. He raped her repeatedly, striking her several times in the face. As she laid there on the cold, dirty, wet floor of the warehouse, he dragged her to a nearby hotel against her will, where he began to rape her again. Fearing for her life, she remained quiet. Then Miyano called 18-year-old Joe Ogura and 17-year-old Yasushi Watanabe, as well as Nobuharu Minato, the young man who originally knocked Junko off her bike. 
Miano repeatedly bragged about the rape, referring to his victim, Junko, as a whore. Ogura begged Miano to keep her so he and a group of his friends could also have sex with her. Officially 24 hours into one of the darkest diabolical forms of torture, around 3 o'clock in the morning, Miyano took Junko to meet Ogura, Watanabe, and Minato at a local park nearby. Miyano bolted leaving Junko alone with the three. Attempting to find a secluded area, Minato, followed by Watanabe and Agura, began to rape her violently. She was gang-raped. After it was over, they threatened they would send the Yakuza to kill her family if she would try to run from them. They took her to Minato's house, where she would live for 43 days. When they arrived, a group of men were already waiting upstairs in the house. During this time, friends, family, and other loved ones began to worry for her. Her employer informed her parents that she didn't show up to work the night before. At this time, about 48 hours have already passed since her disappearance. Junko's parents, including her father, Akira, informed the police immediately. Then they proceeded to file a missing persons report. Junko was made aware that she was a missing person by Miano. Miano threatened her and demanded that she call her parents and let them know she was okay, even though the truth was clearly the opposite. When she called them, she was directed by Miano to tell them that she was at a friend's house and was never coming back. She appeared angry and persistent. Sadly, her parents believed her, so the search was canceled and she was no longer on the missing persons list. In the meantime, Nobuharu Minato made a long list of demands and informed Junko that since she was staying with him, she had to pretend to be his girlfriend when his parents were around. As it was his parents' house, she complied. What Junko was subjected to next in the weeks to come is some of the most ruthless, merciless, and inhumane acts ever inflicted upon another human being. Junko was raped repeatedly. It was estimated that she was raped over 500 times by over 100 men. Some have speculated that the men were friends of the boys. However, some theorists believe they had ties to the Yakuza 
and were actual members of the Japanese Mafia, a connection that was never proven true nor false. During her time in captivity, she was starved for many hours where she was forced to eat live cockroaches and even her own feces. In addition to this, the boys made her drink her own urine and their semen along with other men who were visiting. Oftentimes, at least five men would show up just to have sex with her. Junko was forced to perform sexual acts where she would endure the worst physical and psychological pain. One of the accusers said she was forced to lay on the concrete floor and he and another young man would then take turns jumping on her while she was naked. Sometimes they would even defecate and urinate on her in the process to humiliate her more. This continued for days. ま、4月の5月に着いてはですね、言われなくとも Junko was a rather reserved young woman, so these actions were beneath her. These savages stole her innocence and attempted to devalue her by their own evil actions. In the process, they subjected her to the worst torture ever imaginable that is beyond belief. The four main culprits would make her strip in front of them while singing songs and hit her while she sang. They forced her outside in freezing temperatures, sometimes in the middle of a snowstorm for hours at a time until she would pass out. They would take cigarettes and burn her body, including her vagina, anus, and nipples. They would insert an array of objects that ranged from knives to even swords into her vagina. They would do this over and over and over again. According to perpetrators, fireworks were actually placed in her mouth, her ears, and even inside both her vagina and rectum where they were set off. If she resisted, they would beat her continuously. They would also throw her on concrete and jump on her head. If she resisted, which was often, the frightening foursome and other third parties involved would tie her hands to a ceiling fan and use her as a punching bag. Sometimes she was hung by her neck most of the time, she would fall down, and when she would, they would forcefully spread her legs on the floor and throw heavy dumbbells and weights onto her body. And if she cried or even resisted, 
they would douse her in lighter fluid as punishment and threaten to set her on fire. During this time, she was living at Minato's house for almost three weeks. When the boys were no longer getting off, they resorted to more barbarous forms of torture. They would beat Junko often with baseball bats, golf clubs, and even bamboo sticks, sometimes with glass bottles and very heavy objects. The more she would scream and cry, the more severe the torture would become. She would bleed so much and sometimes pus would ooze out of her wounds, like something straight out of a horror movie. Despite their efforts, Junko still was modestly determined to escape. When she would attempt to use the phone, sadly her efforts would be unsuccessful as one of the perpetrators would catch her. They would punish her by drenching her legs in lighter fluid and threatening to light them if she would attempt to run away. Some days the frightening foursome would chase her throughout the house and taunt her with a match. They would even chase her with a lit candle. After being punished for weeks, Junko started to have severe spasms, almost like convulsions. These four degenerates, Miyano, Ogura, Watanabe, and Minato, thought she was faking it, so they decided to set her on fire again. A little over a week later, the young men started to get more sadistic with their torture methods. They would force Junko to lay down with her eyes pried completely open. Then they would pour hot wax into them and all over her face, covering her completely with the wax until it was dry. Sometimes they would actually try to have sex with her eyeballs. As she screamed in pain, she started to beg them to just kill her. She was tired of suffering. When she would scream or even cry, they would put their cigarettes into her eyes, use pliers to rip off her nipple, and cover her breasts completely with sewing needles like a human pincushion. During this time, Nobuharu's parents were starting to get very suspicious of their son. There were many times they would never see Junko and their son's stories were extremely suspicious and riddled with inconsistencies. But they feared him. They knew of their son's connections to the Yakuza and didn't want to say anything to jeopardize their own lives. Knowing this young woman was being deprived of drinking water and eating food, knowing she was kept locked up in their son's room, and knowing she was enduring subsequent beatings and abuse which were compromising her health and life, 
They didn't even think to do a thing. They did nothing. Junko lost complete control of her bladder and bowel movements, so she would repeatedly urinate and defecate all over Minato's house. And every time she did this, the punishment would become even worse. She reeked of a very foul odor and smelled as if death was already knocking on her door. She was so mutilated beyond all recognition and so weak that one of the savages who committed the acts told authorities it took her almost two hours to walk to the bathroom. She was forced to eat food, but because her body was rejecting it, she would regurgitate all over the place. And because of this, they would beat her more. What's even more sick is the fact that the frightening foursome raped her with a pair of scissors where they completely removed a portion of her vagina. Sometimes this would escalate with her abductors using their fists to reach up into her body near her small intestines, attempting to grab them while bragging. One of the perpetrators even bragged that one of their friends, who was never charged, actually put his head into her vagina and another used a hot light bulb also. The damage was so severe, she constantly begged them to kill her and they would just laugh at her, denying her request. During this time, Koichi Aihara and Tetsuo Nakamura were both bullied by Minato into raping Junko. Extremely distraught and flustered, Aihara frantically told his brother about what he had done. He told them he felt ashamed and that he didn't want to go through with it, but was threatened to do so. They told him he had to ejaculate inside of her and he didn't feel right about doing it. His brother immediately told their parents. Shortly after, their parents called the police. On January 4th, 1989, she played a game of mahjong with the frightening foursome who made the promise to let her go home if she won the game. According to the perpetrators who shared their story, she had won the game. Instead of releasing her as promised, they beat her profusely with an iron barbell weight. As she began to scream, they doused her face and her head, as well as her entire body in lighter fluid, and set her on fire. This lasted for 120 minutes. As she suffered a series of seizures, she was too weak to fight. Sadly, Junko Furata succumbed to her injuries and was unable to wake up after weeks of nefariously monstrous abuse. She died only a few hours later. According to one of her perpetrators, they didn't think all of the torment and torture would have killed her and they didn't realize what they had done 
until they saw her laying on the floor, lifeless. They started to freak out, which escalated in them all getting into a fist fight. That's when they implemented a plan to get rid of the evidence, including Junko's body. Hiroshi Miyano, along with Joe Ogura, were both arrested on January 23, 1989, for the gang rape of an unidentified 19-year-old woman who sadly lived to tell her story. As Miyano was being interrogated, he eventually confessed to the crime, and although the authorities were puzzled by his unexpected admission, on January 24, 1989, the authorities discovered the body of Junko Furata in a 55-gallon concrete oil drum located in Tokyo's Koto Ward area. Her body was wrapped in blankets shoved into a large travel bag before being placed into the concrete oil drum. She was so unrecognizable, the investigators were only able to identify her by her fingerprints. Authorities discovered several Oranamen sea bottles stuck together inside Junko's anal cavity. Despite being badly disfigured and mangled, it was discovered Junko was pregnant. The authorities found Junko's blood on several items in the Minato house. These items included a blood-stained sewing needle, blood-stained pliers, and blood-stained rope. Additionally, they found blood-stained clothing and blood smeared on the floor and concrete. Her parents were both extremely devastated when they discovered what happened to their daughter. In fact, they were both so heartbroken that her mother fainted almost immediately. Her father, Akira, became isolated and was extremely distraught. Junko's mother had to be admitted into a psychiatric hospital and was on a series of selected serotonin reuptake inhibitors. One of Junko's closest friends even attempted suicide after the details of what happened to her were revealed to the public. Nobuharu Minato, Hiroshi Miyano, Yasushi Watanabe, and Joe Ogura were apprehended on March 23, 1989, and in the following month started serving time for this crime. They were indicted, tried, and treated as juveniles, and therefore served only a few years for the abduction, rape, torture, and murder of Junko Furuta. The public prosecutor in Tokyo tried to push a life sentence for the frightening foursome due to the horrific events of the crime, but were denied in the small court as their defense team blamed their violence on childhood brain injuries. Because of this, they received very light sentences. Judge Ruji Yanaze in Tokyo's higher court went on to extend Joe Ogura's time from 10 years to 20 years.
Additionally, the parents of Minato, Watanabe, Ogura, and Miyano had to sell their assets to pay Junko's parents 50 million yen, which is equivalent to almost $500,000 USD. Nobuharu Minato, who is now 48 years old, served very little time for this crime. He has since changed his name to Shinji Minato. He currently lives in Tokyo, Japan. When asked about this crime, people have speculated that he tells the entire story in third-person form. Hiroshi Miyano, who is now 50 years old, uses the name Hiroshi Yokoyama and Yuji Yokoyama served very little jail time for this crime. And when asked about Junko Furuta, he shows no emotion, but does explain the horror and gore details of what happened to her. Joe Ogura who is also 50 years old today, was released in August of 1999. Often dubbed as the ring leader, Ogura was arrested five years after his release for slitting an unidentified man's throat over a woman. Ogura now uses the alias Joe Kamasaku and currently resides in Tokyo, Japan. It has been said while serving time in prison, he bragged about what he did to Junko. He has since been released. Yasushi Watanabe, who is now 49 years old, also served a light sentence and currently lives in Tokyo, Japan. When he is asked about this crime, which happens relatively often, Watanabe tells people exactly what happened in story form. This isn't the first time Japanese serial killers have escaped the law and avoided jail time. In 1981, Issei Sagawa tortured, killed, and cannibalized a Dutch woman. He served no time at all. He's just one of many. Sadly, although some Japanese serial killers have been sentenced to death and receive the proper punishment for the crimes they commit, some of their crimes pale in comparison to the acts committed by Miyano, Ogura, and Minato, and Watanabe against Junko Furuta. Does the punishment really fit the crime? And if so, is this really justice for Junko? I think I can speak on behalf of everyone listening. No. Where is her justice? いつも大らかで明るい純ちゃん文化祭の時
みんなでお揃いで作ったかいハッピーとっても似合っていましたね一生忘れないでしょ校長先生が特別に卒業証書を書いてくださったそうですねこれで3年8組夏本中だため Ju Chan, welcome back. I have never dreamed that I would see you again in this way. You must have been in so much pain, so much suffering. The happy we all made for you, for the school festival looked really good on you. We will never forget you. I have heard that the headmaster. Has presented you with a graduation certificate. So we graduate together. We graduated together, all of us. Ju Chen, there is no more pain, no more suffering. Please rest in peace. Rest in peace, Furuta Junko. If you are enjoying tonight's episode, Of Even Salt Looks Like Sugar, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spreaker, and wherever you find fine podcasts. Also, visit our official website, evensaltlookslikesugar.com. Until we meet again, this is your host, Billy Hoosh, signing off. Thank you for listening. Remember, not everything in life is what it seems, because even salt looks like sugar. <laughs>